Well, I'm not sure if you guys are, are caught up on these statistics. These rather old statistics I want to share with you. Uh, according to a 2008 Barna study, they found that 42% of Christian marriages ended in divorce. That's just a mere 4% lower than the 46% of atheist and agnostic marriages that ended in divorce. Another study, a little bit more recent, says that 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. That's a lot. Um, while we might hope that Christians are more desirable as employees, as contractors, you might think that that would be the case since we are called to do our work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord rather than unto men. That's very often not the case. In fact, the, the opposite is usually the case, that people would rather find an employee or a contractor who is outside of the church, who is not associated with uh, Christianity. Those are very sad statistics for Christianity, that there's really not much of a difference, not much of a distinction between the church and the world. And of course, we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks now, how that is our, our calling as Christians. We are called to be set apart. We are called to be unique in this world. Uh, we looked at, um, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, it says that, we are not to be bound together with unbelievers. It says, what partnership has righteousness with darkness? Or what fellowship has uh, light with darkness? Or, or righteousness with lawlessness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Therefore, come out from the darkness, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. These are the the text that we've been looking at, the, the uh, commands that Paul has been giving to the Corinthians and that we as Christians, we should take and we should uh, implement in our own lives. And we shouldn't do these things just because, um, just for, for the purpose of being separated so we can have distinctions between groups, but rather this is all because God has united himself together with us as we see in verse 16, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He goes on in verse 18 and he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. So it's because of the relationship that God has made with his people that we are to be separate and distinct, that we are to be set apart from the world. It's not just a, a typical casual relationship that we're talking about here. No, the Lord God Almighty has united himself with his people. He has laid down his life for his people. He has actually taken up residence within his people in the Holy Spirit. Again, as he says in verse 16, I will dwell in them. We have been adopted by the Father. That is a, a big deal. That is a relationship that should cause us to, again, be completely set apart, completely distinct from the world in every way possible. And this is why Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, 
Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We cannot go on living as we once did. We cannot go on living as the world. As Christians, once again, we are to be holy and set apart, even as God himself is holy and set apart. And going back and, and considering the context of where we've been the last couple of weeks and considering this topic of, of separation, of not being united together with the world, we have to first realize that this whole exhortation of separation came about as a result of Paul's correspondence concerning the super apostles, the super apostles or the, the false apostles that uh, Paul mentions all throughout the book of Second Corinthians, these apostles who are beginning to influence this church at Corinth. We can read about them in chapter 11. It says in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul said, I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles or to these super apostles. Again, these men who were coming in and they were trying to uh, supersede Paul and uh, the the authority that he had there in Corinth, and he was trying to downplay his influence amongst the Corinthians. Uh, further down in that same chapter, in verse 12, it says, But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And so a major part of why Paul is even writing this letter is to set himself apart from the, the super apostles, from these false apostles, so that they might not have as much influence and power and authority in Corinth and lead the, the Corinthians astray. And we have rightly made application to how we ought to understand this section about being separated and being distinct and set apart. Uh, talking about how we should be set apart in our, our friendships, be set apart in our marriages and our, our business dealings. We shouldn't be identified with the world. However, we have to remember that the whole reason Paul brought this up was because of the super apostles. We have to keep in mind Paul's original context as he was writing this out to the Corinthians in 55, 56 AD, clear back in the first century. He wasn't thinking about you and I sitting here necessarily today in our personal relationships the Holy Spirit, the capital A author, he certainly was, right? But we have to take in mind the original context. And prior to launching into this section on separation, uh, we see a passage that is very similar to our text that we're in today. We are, we are in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, but chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, has a lot of similarities with what we're in today. Again, the text just prior to launching into the the section on separation. Let me read that for you. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. Paul says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Again, the Corinthians had to first be separated from their, their influence to the super apostles so they could be reconciled to Paul 
and to Paul's gospel. And that's why Paul kind of bookends both of both ends of this exhortation to be separated by this exhortation to the Corinthians to open wide to us. He is telling them of his love for them and uh, he's reaching out to them and saying, open up to us too. Welcome us in. And so this is Paul's request, uh, both in 6, 11 through 13, and here in 7, 2 through 4. Paul is requesting that they make room for them in his heart, that they open up their hearts to uh, the apostle and allow him to love on them, to have influence in their life. And this is really Paul's overarching plea with these Corinthians. Just, just let us love you. Let us let us have influence in your life. Listen to us and give us some, give us the time of day to, to love on you and to, uh, to befriend you. That he wants them to make room for him in their hearts. And he'll go on to explain why, but we need to understand, first of all, that this, once again, is his number one priority. That they would be opened wide to him even as he is opened up to them. He is he's begging with them, just please, Listen to me. Open up your hearts and receive me. Uh, show me some, some kindness. Show me some, some grace and some mercy. Uh, trying to share his love with them. We see uh, back in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, that Paul first shared of his love with the Corinthians. He told them, um, our mouth speaks freely to you. We're, we're not lying to you. He says, our heart is open wide. And then from there he went on to request that they, in return, open up their hearts wide to Paul as well. Well, here, as he is appealing to them, he kind of flips that on his head, and he front loads the appeal to the Corinthians. So in verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, make room for us in your hearts. So the same thing he said before, having uh, prefaced it with his love for them, now he's coming back and he's saying, again, open up your, your hearts wide to us, and he's going to go on after this and talk about his love. He's front-loading his request <clears throat> that they open up their hearts to Paul. And we know that Paul has uh, a great history with this church, right? He spent 18 months with this church. He really cares for these people, for these Corinthians. They are his brothers and sisters. They are his friends. Uh, he has, he's been through a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of sin with the Corinthian church, right? They have no shortage of sin, uh, a lot of tears. Paul loved them like a father would love a child, a child. And the Corinthian church, they were like Paul's prodigal, right? Um, not the, the kind of church that you necessarily would think, oh, they're worth bragging about, right? They weren't the, the A-plus student. They weren't the honor roll student, uh, Paul would be the guy who had the bumper sticker on his car that said, my kid beat up your honor student, right? Um, that was the, the Corinthian church. They weren't the ones that you think, oh, well, yeah, of course Paul is proud of them because look at them. They're, they're so great. They're so, so worthy. They're so honorable. Uh, on the surface, no, not at all. They were wicked and sinful. Uh, and yet Paul had care for them. Paul was concerned for them and wanted them to reciprocate that care and concern that he showed for them. And yet, they didn't. The Corinthians, they were closed off to Paul. Uh, Paul, who was their, their spiritual leader. Paul, who was their spiritual mentor. Paul, who was the, the founding pastor of their church. 
and yet they were cold toward him. They were hard toward Paul, not open, not soft. Uh, they had entertained lies about the apostle from these false apostles, from these super apostles. They, they actually took the time to, to listen and to entertain them. And it seems as if some of the Corinthians were actually swayed by the super apostles. And this absolutely grieved Paul. They hadn't taken seriously the repeated warnings of Paul to be careful, to be on the alert, to, to watch out. Uh, just this morning in Sunday school, we were looking at the difference, the distinction between the role and relationship between pastors and laymen. Uh, seeking to dispel different misconceptions that we can have, thinking that... Um, that pastors are somehow better, that they are more spiritual. And we were talking about how the Holy Spirit is actually indwelling every individual believer within the church to the same degree that we who are Christians, we are all spirit-indwelt believers. There isn't a, a vast distinction between the, the pulpit and the pew and how God works within the hearts of the individuals uh, who are represented by each. We are controlled by the same Spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who works in all and through all. And we have to realize that we are united together by that unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. And yet this passage does offer us a, a good opportunity for us to ask ourselves the question of how we are allowing our hearts to be open to and led by our spiritual leaders. We can find a, a good summary of what pastoral ministry is to look like in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Peter there says to pastors to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. Leaders have a responsibility, an obligation to lead the flock, to care for the flock, to exercise oversight over the flock according to the will of God. That doesn't mean that we are to be in 100% agreement with church leaders or to find 100% approval with church leaders. Uh, but at the very least, we should be listening to, to them, hearing them out, not having our hearts closed off to them as the, the Corinthians did with Paul. Paul is pleading with them, open up your hearts, just give me a hearing. Listen to me, let me be involved, let me be included in your life. And particularly in larger decisions, uh, it is good to pass these, these issues by your, your spiritual leaders and to uh, consult with others outside of yourself. I'm often surprised at the decisions that many Christians will make just in isolation. They'll just make them by themselves, off, all alone, without consulting anybody. Uh, large decisions about where they're going to live, where they're going to work, uh, how they're going to... Uh, approach a, a big issue in life and the way that they choose to raise their children. These are big issues 
And we know from Scripture, from Proverbs, that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And I do wonder how often uh, these conversations are just avoided altogether, avoided entirely, because it is already just pre-assumed the response. That perhaps even the, the individual knows the, the outcome, knows the answer that they would receive if they were to take this to their pastor, if they were to take this to a spiritual leader. Uh, think, for example, of somebody who is dating or, or interested in an unbeliever and wondering, should I date this person? Um, and they could perceive already that if I take this issue before my, my spiritual leader, if I take this issue before my, my pastor, some kind of counselor or advisor, they're going to tell me no. And yet maybe if I take a, a verse over here and I kind of look at it sideways and uh, ignore the verses around it, maybe I could see a way that I could satisfy my own uh, gratification, right? Um, I think oftentimes we avoid these conversations because we already assume the outcome. We want to uh, justify our own understanding. And I wonder how much of that the, the Corinthian church was doing, having their ears tickled by the super apostles rather than going to Paul and having their heart open wide to Paul and being willing and, and ready to listen to Paul, being ready to submit to any of the, the teaching or correction that Paul had for them. The Christian life isn't meant to be lived in isolation. We're not to be lone renegades in our Christian walk. Uh, God has given gifts to the church, including pastors and elders and evangelists and uh, the, the prophets and apostles, right? We have their words here. And the Corinthians had a, a living, breathing apostle right there among them. And they opted to ignore him. They refused to open up their heart to him so that they could be uh, teachable and humble. That should be the mark of a Christian. That should be a mark of a believer that we ought to be teachable and humble and have our hearts open wide, ready to listen, to receive, to, to love. And that's certainly not the, the mindset, the mentality that the church at Corinth had. And I think we can take and apply this too to, uh, to you kids, not just to the little kids, but to those of us who still have living parents. Uh, I wonder how open we are to their counsel, to their advice. One of the first verses that we taught our kids, and I think most people teach their kids, is Ephesians 6.1, right? Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Um, and of course, that changes throughout life. However, we're always to honor our parents. And I think that there is great wisdom that we can gain from uh, not only our biological parents, but from those who are uh, more mature, spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. I think we do well to uh, listen to them, to have our hearts open wide to them so that we can be teachable and humble, um, not making these big decisions in, in isolation, but looking to those that God has placed in our lives as spiritual leaders for advice, um, for his direction in our lives. Again, Paul truly did care for these Corinthians, despite the fact that they seemed to want to do their own thing, despite the fact that they were following after other false apostles that Paul knew didn't have their best interests in mind. Paul still loved them. He still cared for them. He had a tender, compassionate heart for them. 
Uh, again, just like a, a father would for a son, just like a mother would for her son or, or her daughter. Um, I've been reading through Second Samuel, and I've been reminded of the story of David and Absalom. You remember King David, right? The man after God's own heart. And his son Absalom was not a man after God's own heart. His son Absalom was wicked and rebellious. Uh, he wanted the, the kingdom for himself. He was jealous of his father David and his father's throne. And he sought to turn the hearts of the people away from David and toward himself. In fact, it says as much in 2 Samuel 15, 13. It says there that a messenger came to David saying that the hearts of the men of Israel are in fact with Absalom. So he was successful in doing this, in this ploy to turn their hearts away from his father David. He would go out into the, the streets, out into the gates, and he would meet with the people, just the common folk, and he would let them kind of ramble and tell him uh, of all their discontentments, what they didn't like about the king, what they didn't like about his his leadership and the way that the country was being ruled and directed, and he would sympathize with them. Uh, he would uh, let them complain and say, oh yeah, I, I can totally see that. And he would draw them over to his side, onto his team, against his, his father. And even one of David's own trusted counselors and advisors turned away from David and toward Absalom, and he began to give counsel and advice to Absalom rather than to David. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave to Absalom was that while David was out of town, he should go and uh, sneak into David's palace and take his concubines up onto the roof and sleep with them in front of the, the whole nation, just publicly shaming his dad. This was the, the heart that Absalom had to turn the hearts of the people away from David and toward himself. He was a, a wicked, sinful man. Uh, and again, he was successful in turning those hearts away from David in much the same way that the, the super apostles in Second Corinthians were successful to some measure in turning the hearts of the people away from Paul and toward themselves. They turned uh, away from, uh, again, away from Paul toward themselves just as Absalom turned the hearts of the people away from his father and toward them, ignoring the pleas of the father. And we see uh, after Paul's request to, to open up your hearts to us, to, to receive us, to let us in, that he lists three reasons uh, why Paul was able to make this request. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 7:2, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. These are the three reasons that Paul gives. And notice that these are three negatives, three things that Paul says. These are things that we didn't do. Neither Paul nor uh, his companions wronged anybody or uh, corrupted anybody, took advantage of anybody. And if you think about it, there are actually thousands of people who could say that same thing about the way that they treated the Corinthians. Tens of thousands of people who say, could say, well, we never wronged them, we never corrupted them, we never took advantage of them, and yet they didn't have the, the right to make this request that Paul made to them. They didn't have the, the right to say, well, just open up your heart to us. Be, be real with us. Be loving toward us. And so it's actually likely that these three uh, responses are really three uh, reactions 
or these three reasons are really three responses or, or reactions to the super apostles that uh, Paul is actually lobbing away these, these accusations that are coming toward him from the super apostles who are saying, well, well, Paul, he, he wronged you. He corrupted you. He uh, took advantage of you. And so I think there's reason to believe that these were actual accusations that were being thrown at him from the super apostles. And the, taking them one by one, we see the first one, that we wronged no one. To be wronged, that word there means to be treated unjustly or to be injured. And Paul says, we never injured you. We always treated you rightly. We always treated you with absolute justice. Um, this was so outside of the, the character and the nature of Paul to wrong somebody. This was outside of his, his focus, his purview, his desire in loving them and sharing the gospel of God with them. Back in chapter 6, verse 3, uh, we see his, his heart, we see his desire, his motive. It says that he wants to give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. That was Paul's desire. He knew that people would look at him and they would have the same uh, response for the gospel that they had for him. That he had this ministry of uh, reconciliation. He understood that he was a, a representative of God, an ambassador that was entrusted with a message, and that he had the ability to detract from people's understanding, people's response to the gospel, if they were responding to him in a way that they ought not to be, if he was perceived as being somebody who was wronging them. He goes on, he says, we corrupted nobody. This word is speaking of moral corruption. Again, Paul was very aware of the importance of being morally corrupt. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived, but bad company corrupts good morals. It's very easy for us to have our morality corrupted. And Paul was not only saying that he wasn't corrupting, but he went the extra mile to prevent this corruption, to warn against this corruption, knowing that it's a, a very real possibility for the Corinthians. He, again, had such a love and desire for these people. He didn't want them to be corrupted. Uh, God forbid that he be pointed out as the, the means of this corruption. And then thirdly, he says, we not only didn't wrong anybody, we only, not only didn't corrupt anybody, but we didn't take advantage of anybody. Now, this word, to, to take advantage of, is speaking of uh, defrauding for selfish gain, to manipulate for financial gain. And this is no small accusation. That's a, a big deal. This is a potentially disqualifying matter for Paul. Paul himself, with his own words, he spoke in uh, both Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 to not be fond of sordid gain to be free from the love of money. That was Paul's standard. That was his requirement for uh, being an elder, for being a pastor, for be, being in ministry. And if he himself weren't living up to this standard, up to this requirement, then he wouldn't be qualified to be the apostle that was speaking into the lives of these people. And so he can't just allow that accusation to, to sit there without addressing it. So he's here addressing it, saying, we, we never did that. Not once did we wrong anybody. Not once did we corrupt anybody. We certainly didn't seek our own personal gain. We weren't trying to take advantage of people. Uh, Paul was selfless in his ministry. He was there 
working night and day for these people, not doing it for his own selfish gain. Uh, perhaps this accusation came about as a part of the, the collection that he was making. We've talked a little bit about the collection that he was there making for the, the church back in Jerusalem. Again, another selfless act, realizing that this body, this local church of Jerusalem, they were hurting, they were needing. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more in chapter 8 and 9. But perhaps it was this collection that caused the super apostles to say, no, that man is, he's trying to defraud you. He is trying to take advantage of you. And Paul here is saying, absolutely not. That's not my intention at all. That is not what I was seeking to do. Uh, ironically, Paul has to make this kind of defense often. These aren't the only group of men who are coming up against Paul, who are opposing his work for the gospel. This is a rather common thing in his life. In 1 Thessalonians 2.3, he told them, he says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Uh, very similar to what he says here. We didn't wrong anybody, didn't corrupt anybody, didn't take advantage of anybody, uh, not by error, not by impurity, not by way of deceit. Trust us. We have your best interests in heart uh, and, and reciprocate. That's what he is calling for. And this is a, kind of a, an awkward position for Paul to be put in by the super apostles where uh, he is having to defend these things against uh, the Corinthians, this uh, self-defense really isn't Paul's strong suit. He doesn't like to defend himself. He finds it incredibly distasteful. And we see in this letter, oftentimes he says, I've, I've become a fool to have to boast of my apostleship. Uh, this is so outside of his character. He would much rather be referred to as a, a slave of Christ, as a galley slave who is uh, an under rower on a ship, on a boat, who is serving Christ, who is working hard for Christ. He doesn't want to, to lift himself up and elevate himself and uh, tell these people, hey, look, I have this apostolic authority. You need to listen to me. But that is pretty much what he's been brought to by these accusations that these super apostles are bringing up against him. And he's gone to, to such an extent that he is... Um, he is looking to God, and he is appealing to, to God, saying that God himself has found favor in me. He has appealed to his own conscience even. Uh, back in the very beginning of this epistle, in 2 Corinthians 1.12, he said, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. And Paul kind of summarizes these three defenses, these three uh, responses to these accusations that he hasn't wronged or corrupted or taken advantage of anybody by saying that he doesn't speak to condemn them. He's not trying to, to pass judgment on the Corinthians, certainly not final judgment. That's not his heart at all. Paul isn't seeking to condemn these believers. He is wanting them to, to open wide their heart, to help them be able to take a scalpel and to uh, surgically remove any uh, misunderstandings that they might have about who he is, uh, to take away any lies or sins so that they would be able to more properly respond to him, to the truth of his gospel, to Paul's love for them. 
Paul wants them to perform this open heart surgery to, to open their hearts wide to, to him so that he can uh, pour his love into them, so that he can direct them and guide them in the way that they ought to go. And so, again, here we see Paul kind of front-loading this request, open up to us, and then he follows it up with uh, his love for them. It says in the latter part of verse 3, Oh, yeah, we'll just read verse 3. It says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Again, Paul is saying, not only do we love you, you are actually in our hearts. Paul has great love for these people. They're not just any church to Paul. Uh, he has a, a tremendous love for the church at Corinth. And this is really the, the catalyst for his request to open up their hearts to him. Uh, Paul's love is a, a Christ-like love. We know that we love Christ because he first loved us. We look and we see what he did for us on the cross and we respond to that love. And that is what Paul is doing here at Corinth, saying, you know what, I, I've loved you and I want you to respond to me. I don't want you to just sit there, but actually reciprocate that love for me. And Paul wasn't one to practice strong-arm leadership. He wasn't overbearing in his leadership. He cared for his people. He led by example and was once again hoping for them to reciprocate. In chapter 12, Paul says, I will not be a burden to you, for I don't seek what belongs to you, but you yourselves. And he goes on, he says that children aren't responsible for their parents, but parents, in fact, are responsible for their kids. He says, I would most gladly be spent and be expended for your souls. Not only would I like to, to spend for you, I would like to be expended. I would like to be spent for you and for your souls. And Paul had this mentality of himself. He, he viewed himself as a, a parent, a spiritual parent to the Corinthian church, as a, a nursing mother, as a caring, compassionate father who stepped in to, to protect them, to guide them. That was a, the mindset that Paul had of himself in relationship to this church. And going back to Second Samuel and our excursion into the, the Old Testament, considering Absalom, uh, I want to look at David's response to what Absalom was doing, what David was thinking as Absalom was uh, running around, sleeping with his concubines and uh, conspiring against David, trying to get all these people on his team. Uh, what was David doing? We can see in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, that David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went. His head was covered, and he walked barefoot. He was barefoot, walking, weeping up a mountain. Not only him, but all the people who were with him were also covering their head, and they went up weeping as they went. David, having these attacks being thrown against him by his own son, responded by, by weeping, by, by taking off his shoes, clothing himself in, in sackcloth and ashes. This was a tremendously burdensome for, for David. In chapter 18, verse 5, it says that David responded by charging Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. 
So not only was David saddened by this, but he went the extra step and he said, you know what, this guy that's coming up against me, this guy that's coming up against my kingdom, my son who's coming up against my kingdom, deal kindly with him and do so for my sake. That's still my son. I know what he's doing is wrong. That's my boy. Don't harm him. And it says that he said that so that everybody heard Joab and Abishai and these other names that are difficult to pronounce. Uh, he said it so everybody could hear. And yet, Joab didn't listen to David, but instead he went out and he killed Absalom. He killed Absalom brutally uh, as Absalom was uh, hanging in a tree by his hair, and selfless and or defenseless, just there by himself without any weapon, and, and Joab uh, killed him. Uh, he speared him through. And when David heard about this, of course he was absolutely heartbroken. In chapter 18, verse 33, we see David's response. It says, The king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. David, wishing that he himself had been killed rather than his son Absalom, whom he was weeping for and caring for and crying over, despite the fact that Absalom was waging war against David. And the, the people who had anointed Absalom at this point as king, uh, they were fearful. They were unsure of what David would do to them, but David turned around and he showed grace and mercy to them also. These people who had elevated Absalom to the position of king. And Paul had this same heart, this same concern, this same love for the Corinthian people that David had for not only Absalom, but the people who had uh, lifted Absalom up to this powerful position. Uh, Paul goes on in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 7, saying, not only are you in our hearts, but he says to die together and to live together. And we know that Paul was willing to, to endure harm and hardship and even death for his people. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I affirm that I die daily. He was constantly being put under the, the stress and uh, the, the fear of death. Back in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he says a, a similar thing. He says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Paul was willing to submit himself to the potential of death. And yet, I think he's getting at more than that here. He's not just saying, I was, I was willing to die for you. I was willing to live for you. That phrase actually was very popular in the time. Uh, I will live with you and I will die with you was a common phrase in that day. And yet, you'll notice that Paul took it and he flipped it around. He didn't say, I will live with you and I will die with you. He says um, that to, to die together and to live together. He puts death prior to life. Uh, some translations have taken that and they've reverted it. They flipped it around. The NIV and the NLT translate it differently with living first and then dying second. But I think they actually messed up at this point that they made a mistake in doing that, not only because of the, the word order in the Greek, which is very clear that Paul says clearly that 
uh, he, that they die together and then live together, but also because of the, the theological implications of switching this around. We are united together. We are united with each other through death. It is the, the death of Christ and our death in him that unites us together, that makes us one in Christ. That is vitally important to our, our unity in Christ because we have died together with him. Let's look at Romans 6, 5 through 7. Romans 6, 5 through 7. Again, Paul in the same, uh, the same author in a different book. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And Jesus himself said something similar in John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Death must necessarily precede life in a Christian. We have to first die to ourselves, die to our sin. And in doing so, we are, we are united together with Christ. We are united together with his bride, with his body in life. And Paul says the same thing just a couple of chapters ago, back in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so in Paul saying that we, we die together and we live together, he's talking not only about the degree of love that he has for them and his willingness to die for them, but the, where this love results from, where it comes from, it is from their unity together in Christ because they have died together and therefore they can live together because of the life that they have in Christ, because of the unity that they have at the cross. And then after this, having reminded them again of his fatherly love for them, of his pastoral love for them, the, the love that comes about because of their, their unity in the death of Christ, he expounds upon three different consequences or results of this love that he has for them. This love results in confidence and in boasting and in comfort. We see this in uh, verse 4. Great is my confidence in you and great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. When Paul speaks there of his confidence in them, and perhaps you have a, a different translation that might say toward them. He's, uh, it's really unclear whether or not uh, he's talking about his confidence that is in them or toward them. So it's translated both different ways. Um, if we understand it to be his, his confidence in them, I mean, that's uh, wild, right? That Paul would be confident in this messed up Corinthian church uh, who is making mistake after mistake. Uh, and yet that confidence would be a, a reflection not of them and their abilities, but of God's work in them. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so Paul, uh, desiring the, the best for them, hoping the best for them, would perhaps have confidence in them. 
we know from the beginning of this epistle, all the way back at verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, Our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our sufferings, you are also sharers of our comfort, that they share in this because of Christ and what Christ has done for them. Uh, this would certainly be a, a result of God's working in them, uh, of him completing that which he first sought out to accomplish. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of perfection. And uh, yet his confidence in them, as we'll look at in, in next week, uh, could also be based on their response, their positive response to uh, Titus coming back with a, a message, a, a positive response from the letter that he delivered to them. However, uh, as I mentioned, a couple of different ways to understand this. Maybe he's not saying, I'm, I'm confident in you, but more so that he is confident toward them, that he is able to speak confidently to them. The ESV translates it as uh, saying, I am acting with great boldness toward you. Or the NIV says, I have spoken to you with great frankness. That Paul has such love for these people that he's willing to shoot them straight. He's willing to, to cut it to them straight without mincing his words. Uh, he's not going to beat around the bush. He's just going to tell them how it is because he has such love for them, such confidence toward them. I've had a couple different occasions where we, we live in a messed up world, right? Even in the church, there are people who sin and fall and just do ugly, wicked things. Um, and I know that I've told people before, if you ever do that, I'm going to punch you in the face, right? In, in love, as a brother in Christ, because I have such confidence towards you. I have such love towards you that I'm willing to, to tell you that, uh, even though um, that might not come across well, right? It's because of my confidence toward them that I'm able to, to speak in that kind of way. Wilfred Isaacs uh, summarized this verse by saying that to you I speak boldly of your faults, and to others I speak no less boldly of your merits. I think that's a good way to summarize this, that he speaks boldly to them about their faults. He's willing to, to hit them straight, and yet he's willing to boast to others about their merits, uh, which is a, the second thing we see that Paul is boasting on their behalf. And Paul uses this word boasting only 11 times in all of his writings. And seven times he uses it of this church at Corinth. Again, this, this messed up church at Corinth, uh, he uses this word of two out of three times that he uses it about them, speaking about the boasting that he does on their behalf. In chapter 9, verse 2, he says, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them to, to give toward this, uh, this fundraising that he's doing for this church at Jerusalem. He goes on in chapter 11, verses 10 and 11, and he says, For they say his letters... Nope, that's the wrong one. Uh, chapter 11, he says, um, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the region of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows that I do. He loves them so much that he's willing to, to tell them when they need to step it up, when they need to get their act together. He loves them so much that he's willing to boast about them to other people. And then 
another result of his love is that he is filled with comfort and overflowing joy for them. Uh, not just regular joy, but overflowing joy. This is uh, that he is overjoyed, a, a joy that is actually bubbling over. Uh, I think of those champagne glasses, right? And how you fill the top one and it kind of fountains all the way down, a little pyramid type thing. Uh, we do that all the time at our house. Um, not really, but that's kind of the picture that I get in my mind when Paul uses this word of uh, bubbling over joy. Uh, he is just like a, a kid on Christmas, just super excited because of his love for this broken, messed up church. And in the, the coming weeks, we're going to get into uh, how this overcoming joy is due, once again, to Titus bringing back a good report about these these people. Uh, he has confidence in them because of this this good news that we'll look at next week more fully um, considering his the the report that he got that um, these people that he thought were were once far off maybe there's hope that um, he can be reconciled to them that he can have this love rejuvenated and be reunited once again to them but until then uh, you and I we are to imitate Paul just as Paul imitates Christ in his love for this church we ought to imitate that in our love for one another in our unity as the body of Christ, in our willingness to open up to one another, to love one another, to uh, be transparent with one another, to be vulnerable. That is not an easy thing to do, but that is what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do. That is what I think you and I should do as his church, to live our lives as the body of Christ selflessly, willing to, to die together, willing to live together because of the death that we have in common, in our Lord. Uh, we are united in his death, and we should be united in life through Christ. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would continue to, to search us, to, to show us any of our uh, shortcomings, any of our unwillingness to be transparent. If we have closed, hard hearts, God, expose that and uh, teach us, train us up in the way that we should go. Uh, help us to to grow up into you, into our head, so that we could become more and more like you, so that we could be separate and distinct and set apart. God, let us not be a, a bad testimony to you, but let us be loving and, and gracious and kind. May the world know that we are Christians because of our loving you. God, thank you for your death. Thank you for your uniting us together in one body, one faith, one baptism. God, help us to live out our lives in a way that honors you. Amen.